Hello and welcome to a Wednesday night edition of Distant Sour. Tonight we've got a huge swathe of strikes to talk about, plus the Scottish Parliament is currently debating a historic gender recognition reform bill. Piers Morgan has been platforming Andrew Tate and we'll be busting myths about the NHS independent pay review body. Quite a mouthful. To discuss those stories, I'm joined by Nihal El Assar. Nihal, how are you doing? Uh, I'm trying to avoid the numerous viruses and illnesses plaguing the country, <laughs> to be honest, and timing myself to be at home in the allotted three hours of when the heating is supposed to be on. <laughs> My goodness. This is a thing in London, isn't it? I get the train coming into London. Everybody is sick. <laughs> yeah, every Christmas party or social event last week has been cancelled. Everyone's emerging from a cold. It's mad. I'm putting it down to the Navarra Media Christmas party. <laughs> that was the, the super spreader event. <laughs> Let's get on to more important things like the strikes we're seeing right now. December is a busy month for industrial action in the UK. There have been and will be strikes every day this month. Economists estimate that between 1 and 1.5 million workdays will be lost before the month is out. That's on top of the 1.1 million lost between June and October. And it makes December the biggest month for walkouts since July 1989 or because the government is refusing to negotiate with public sector workers on pay. For a party who pride themselves on putting the economy first, the Tory shores seem bent on tanking it. No week is set to be busier than this one, though. We've seen airport workers and civil servants take action on Monday, while nurses and civil servants walked out on Tuesday. On Thursday, railway, airport and road workers will down tools, and they'll do the same on Friday, with the Royal Mail joining them too. Sounds like a Craig David song. Many of these strikes will continue right across the Christmas weekend. But today is the turn of ambulance workers, with thousands of them walking out over poor pay and terrible working conditions. It's the first strike of this scale by ambulance workers in over 30 years. The Health Secretary, Steve Barclay, has criticised unions for not having a national strategy to deal with Category 2 emergency calls, which include heart attacks and strokes. Speaking to the BBC, here's how Unite General Secretary Sharon Graham responded. Every time the Health Secretary speaks, I've got my head in my hands. I have never seen such an abdication of leadership than I have from Rishi Sunak and the Health Secretary. We have negotiated actually locally all of the cover. The Category 1s are all going to be answered. Category 2 will be triaged. But the important thing to say here is that this government has walked away from the negotiating table. This strike did not need to happen. They need to get back to the negotiating table so we can get a proper pay rise for these workers and everyone can go back to work. The government has said it can't afford above inflation pay rises. It's accepted recommendations from its independent pay review body. Where do we go from here? Well, first of all, the pay review body isn't independent and they pick and choose when they use it. But this is about choices. Um, the energy companies have made £170 billion in excess profit, more than normal profit. They could use some of that, £50 billion of that, to plug the black hole, give these workers a 10% pay rise that only costs £6 billion and they'd have 4 billion billion left over. This is about choices. They need to make the right choices, stop backing profiteering and start backing the NHS. Strong words from Sharon Graham there. And that wasn't the only attack on NHS workers Barclay has made. Here's what he wrote in a recent Telegraph article. Ambulance unions have taken a conscious choice to inflict harm on patients. In these trying circumstances, ministers and NHS colleagues have done their utmost to minimise the threat to public safety. 
We have convened cross-government COBRA meetings four times in the last fortnight, activated situation rooms and drafted in hundreds of members of the military. I guess doing your utmost doesn't include negotiating a pay settlement. That's a point that Michelle Hussain puts the health secretary on Radio 4's Today programme. This is not like other strike actions. A strike action in the NHS is about life and death. Don't you owe it to patients, to the public, to have that conversation, to sit in a room and not to say, I won't talk about pay. Hear well, we out. did. We have had conversations Without with talking unions. about we, pay. So You've made very clear you're not talking about pay. Just have the conversation. We, well, we had meetings with the unions yesterday. I had two meetings with Unison yesterday. We discussed a range of issues, including the escalation uh, process in terms of today because they have been unwilling to give the national undertakings in terms of what calls will be covered, uh, particularly around emergency calls, which they've been unwilling to say that they will answer. In terms of pay, it's a long-standing uh, position and indeed the Labour government, uh, the Labour uh, Party also supports and in government, when they were in government, they also supported the independent pay review process. So that is a very long-standing process that is used by government. We're going to talk about those independent pay review bodies later in the show. So the government line is that they won't even discuss pay with ambulance workers while undermining the public's trust in the contingency arrangements, blaming workers for anything that goes wrong during the strike. A line the media has happily picked up on. This is the Daily Mail's front page today. How will they live with themselves if people die today? While The Sun has this. Don't use your car. Don't go running. Don't play sport. Don't get drunk. Don't have fun. At the top there, it says unions cripple NHS strike hit Brits told. Ahead of the ambulance strikes, The Sun's former editor, Kelvin McKenzie, posted this message on social media. Vile shitbags who drive ambulances for a living. That is a very strange way to start any sentence in my experience. Say they had no choice but to leave thousands of patients with strokes, heart attacks and broken bones, make their own way to hospital during tomorrow's strike. See how they feel if it's their mum, upping their pay with your pain. Kelvin, there are already thousands of patients with strokes, heart attacks, and broken bones unable to go to hospital. That's literally one of the major reasons for these strikes, the fact that the government has brought the NHS to its knees. The Mirror reported this. Grim figures from NHS England reveal that 93 people died while being transferred from ambulances to the wards in 2021-2022, compared to 40 the previous year. Incidents where the patient suffered severe harm in transit, such as a lasting injury, tripled from 51 cases to 154 in a year. And the total number of cases where a patient was harmed on their way to hospital rose to 5,092, up from 3,866 from 2017-18, according to data released under freedom of information laws. With more than 10,000 blue light workers set to strike on Wednesday, exhausted staff have said understaffing and demand are leaving emergency crews struggling to attend callouts on time. Ambulances are expected to respond to the most urgent Category 1 calls, such as a cardiac arrest, within seven minutes, but this hasn't been met nationally since last April. Last month, the average response outside London was 9 minutes and 26 seconds. Emergency crews have an 18-minute target for Category 2 calls, such as heart attacks and strokes, but this hasn't been achieved since July 2020. Last month, the average wait outside London was 48 minutes and 8 seconds. Anyhow, the government has said it might use the army to cover striking emergency workers, but underfunding has meant the ambulance service hasn't been able to cope for a while. 
Why are they only talking about needing extra support now? Well, I don't think they're going to actually follow through with that. Uh, it's the threat. They're trying to placate the Tory base, I think, because this isn't a winning strategy for the government and it will be deeply unpopular. There's this fantasy vision of the military as an infinitely resourced and, resourced and completely capable institution. But if that's the case, why haven't we done this before? Like, wh- why, are the, why, are the military, why are the army walking around in fields or embarrassing themselves in Afghanistan? Why are they not being put to public use? No, it's because the government wants to distract attention away from the fact that the NHS is systematically underfunded. They're trying to point towards the strikers as being the source of the lack of service, that the strike is a source of lack of service rather than years of like gutting the NHS and underfunding it. When in reality, ambulance workers do much more than, you know, drive the ambulance. They often do the work of GPs and mental health workers for less compensation. And right now they are running below safety level. Like um, the waiting time for an ambulance is often 12 hours. So to pit ambulance workers against patients is really despicable when they're both on the same side. So to me, this really doesn't seem realistic. Pay the workers 6% more rather than paying someone else infinitely more to get them in, which makes this really an ideological battle. It just shows a visceral hatred of the working class, in my opinion. I've got a particular question for you, Nihal, because you're from Egypt. And I think most of our audience in the UK, the government love to say, we're going to send in the army. It can be anything. (laughs) And the Tory base love it, even if they actually don't end up sending in the army. So in the 2000s, every time there was a strike by the fire brigades, for instance, the army would be sent in. Is this something unique to Britain? Is this something across sort of North Africa or West Asia? I mean, it's, it's not something I've heard. In the US, again, you don't really hear about it. I suppose the counter argument is, well, the state doesn't administer many public services in the first place. Tell me, is this a uniquely British kind of rhetoric and response from the government? It goes back to this idea of like patriotism and uh, getting, because obviously there's a large sympathy for nurses and NHS staff. So they're trying to rile up the patriotism when they talk about the army, right? In Egypt, obviously, that's not the case because it's more of like a deep state. So the army kind of is the state. <laughs> so they don't need to be doing that. Yeah, and I guess as well in some countries, if you have the army administering certain social services, it's a, it's a bit of a vote of no confidence in the, in the democratically elected governments. Um, again, you, you said 12 hours. Do you have any sort of personal stories that you've heard recently? I think it's really important we actually get onto this kind of terrain. Any personal sort of stories about failure and, and, and how people that you know have had to wait for an ambulance? I mean, from what I've been reading and from what I've been hearing, like the op-eds I've been reading and like from what I've been seeing, the ambulance workers are depressed. They're dealing with a lot of emotional labor from what they see, emotional exhaustion. Like if they're really tired all the time and they can't keep up with the demands of their workplace, how are they going to administer their work in a safe way, which is obviously something that needs to be (laughs) considered and something that is really alarming when it's the health service and their safety issues. And from what we know, and like everyone, like when they try to either book an appointment with the GP or go to the emergency room, like the waiting times are unusual and unusually long. And it's back to what you said, Erin, making 
government services so unreliable and so bad that people start to think about the private sector as the answer, right? Yeah, that's been a major trend. I asked that because one recent story that I knew of was through my wife and, and she knew somebody where we live on the South Coast. It was a woman who had an ectopic pregnancy and she was essentially bleeding to death at a warehouse where her business was based. And she was only found after several hours by her husband and the ambulance hadn't arrived. It sounded like they hadn't actually believed that there was a problem with regards to the call center. And I just think, wow, this must be happening in so many places. And like you say, some of it comes through the media, but I think we're missing out on so many extraordinary stories precisely because of their toxicity for the government. But anyway, more of that. And that's the job of Navarra Media, I guess, in 2023 to get those stories out there. Before we go any further, I'm going to ask you to consider supporting Navarra Media and our work in 2023. Uh, if you want to do that, please go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. You can make a one-off payment uh, or you can make an ongoing subscription. Uh, over 10,000 people decided to do that in 2022. They allow us to reach an ever bigger audience, which we do thanks to the magical work of the one and only Gary McGuigan and of course his team in the video department, TikTok, Instagram, all the rest of it. So to help us clone Gary, I'm only speaking of course metaphorically, go to navarami.com forward slash support and help us change the political conversation in 2023. So far this week, we've seen two days of historic strikes by NHS workers. Nurses walked out yesterday over paying conditions. The government is still refusing to negotiate with them. And today is the ambulances. But despite these being actions of huge national importance, one person has been conspicuously absent. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Here's Sharon Graham on Sky News. We are in one of the biggest crises that we've had in the NHS. And what uh, the minister has just said is that my door is always open, but not to talk to you about the very issue that you're on strike about. I think people will find that mind-boggling, to be honest. Um, but what I want to say today about this is that we are prepared to negotiate. We have been calling um, on the government to come round the table and negotiate. I don't know where Rishi Sunak is. Um, he wasn't even in the country yesterday. This is unfolding in front of his eyes. He's the leader. He's the core decision maker. He needs to get round the table. And so I say to him today, because I've heard that they're saying we can't get diaries together, etc. All the general secretaries are willing to come and see him to negotiate. And if he can't find a date, I'll give him a date, the 25th of December. He won't have any meetings on that day. We are quite prepared to come and talk to him on the 25th of December, if that's the only diary date that he's got, to make sure that we can bring resolution to this dispute. It doesn't have to be a long negotiation. We've done this already in Scotland. It's a very simple negotiation. We need a move so we can take that back to our members and our members then can decide if it's a big enough move. But he is absolutely abdicating his responsibility as prime minister. He needs to get round the table and he now needs to negotiate. Nihal, Sunak doesn't appear particularly interested in this, but is he keeping his hands clean because he doesn't want to be associated with this? And because this is a battle the government is perhaps going to lose. It's quite difficult to gauge, but we need to think about this. Who told Steve Barkley to attack the paramedics? I'm not saying it's Rishi, but that's a possibility. A lot of this is ideology, I think. A lot of this is could be attributed to the internal dynamics of the party, the Tory party. Seems to me like they're going full kamikaze it's, it's a caricature of Thatcherism, really, because 
even Margaret Thatcher still did a lot of compromises with the labor unions. Maybe if there was an antagonistic and functional opposition party, Rishi Sunak would have come out and said something. Because another question is, where is the Labour Party in this? The last time we had strikes of this magnitude was the 1970s. But where is Keir Starmer? The most I heard from the Labour Party was that they said that they support the right to strike, the abstract right to strike, not the strikes that are happening, which is a non-answer in my opinion. Mm. The right to strike is guaranteed by law. If you didn't support the right to strike, you'd be supporting indentured labor. So thanks, mm. I guess. The Labour Party isn't quite yet the Chinese Communist Party. That's that's something. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's not it's not even doing anything. It's it's more the anti-Labour Party right now. It's very anti-worker at the current moment. Starmer is as much of a neoliberal ideologue as uh, Rishi Sunak is. And he's terrified of that moniker of being called a socialist or being affiliated with Corbyn in any way, shape or form, that this is his primary motivation of doing anything. I think, in my opinion, both like Rishi Sunak and Starmer are kind of like dancing monkeys on a stick right now, trying to appeal to the city of London. And they're appealing to a fictional voter base who doesn't exist. I think most people who are vaguely familiar with me anyway, would say that I don't give Labour, you know, Labour and Keir Starmer a particularly easy ride. But I think that's a really insightful comment from you, Nihal. And I, I suppose I, I then have to respond with a question. Do you think if somebody like Jeremy Corbyn, and I don't mean Jeremy Corbyn, I mean a, a left-wing leader of the Labour Party who was going to explicitly defend um, NHS workers on strike saying, yeah, okay, they're asking for 19% ballpark. That's something we probably need to do. If you did have a leader of the opposition saying that, do you think we'd see something different from the government? I'm not sure about the government's response right now and how, because how the Tory party has been acting has been quite strange, frankly. But like definitely, if you had a functioning oppositional party, if you had someone to the left of Keir Starmer, who, if they were even smart, they would do like a divide and conquer strategy, compromise with the nurses, isolate the RMT, anything. But I'm not saying obviously do that, that's a really bad thing to do, but like from a pragmatic point of view, someone might be thinking that. But no, we don't see that at all right now. We, do, we see like a feckless Labour Party doing nothing. The Scottish Parliament is currently debating its gender recognition reform bill. The bill is widely expected to pass, and if it does, it'll make it possible for trans people to have their gender legally recognised through a system of self-declaration. Under the new law, trans people won't require a medical diagnosis of gender dysphoria to change the sex on their birth certificate. They'll also be able to do it from the age of 16 rather than 18, and they'll only have to live in their gender for three months as opposed to the current two years before applying. Earlier today, Navarro's Stephen Methven spoke to feminist, LGBT rights activist, writer and YouTuber Katie Montgomery. Stephen began by asking her to explain the Gender Recognition Reform Bill and why it matters. The Gender Recognition Act uh, is a law that's been in, in force in the UK since 2004, and it allows you to, as a trans person, get a gender recognition certificate. The gender recognition certificate does a couple of things, but the main thing is that it allows you to change the sex on your birth certificate. And that it's not really as maybe as important as that sounds, because 
basically, if you think back in your life to when you've had to use your birth certificate for something, it's not many, there's not many cases for it. It's usually when you apply for your first ever driving license or passport, or when you're getting married, or when you die, or if you're studying overseas. They're the kind of use cases for this. And, and I think it's important for me to say here that what it doesn't do, because this is kind of relevant to the pushback against it, is that it doesn't um, let you use single-sex spaces. It doesn't determine which sports you're allowed to play. It doesn't determine which prison you're housed in. It doesn't determine whether shelters, women's shelters, accept you or not. All of those things are covered by the Equality Act 2010, which is a different law and has been in force well, for over a decade. So the reason why we want these reforms is not really to change what the gender recognition certificate itself actually does. It's to change the process of getting one. So currently, if you want to, as when you're transitioning, there are loads of times when you have to change documents. And so for an example, if you wanted to change your passport and have a new photo, have your new name, update your sex and your passport, you fill in a form, there's like four pages, you pay some money, you send off a new photo, you get some signatures from a a doctor or whatever, someone who knows you, and then you get your new passport. But to get a gender recognition certificate, I mean, I got my one this year uh, after years and years of getting to the point where I could and battling through the system. And uh, I sent off 45 pages of evidence, which is ridiculous. And that included uh, ludicrous things such as a full description of what my genitals are like, a list of all the surgeries I've ever had, two different diagnoses from uh, doctors to say whether I'm sane or not. Um, there was a description of whether my accessories were convincingly feminine enough and comments on my fashion choices. Like this is just, it's completely out of date and um, just, it's, it's like almost barbaric, the things that they require in order to get these kind of, you know, important rights, but kind of corner case ones, not everyday rights. And it's just out of step with other processes like updating your passport. So that's the main thing that the reform covers, and that's that's what people are pushing for. Yeah, that sounds like an incredibly invasive um, process that you described there. What, one of the features of the of the reforms is that um, it's going to lower the age from which people can get a gender recognition certificate from eighteen to sixteen. Can you say something about why that's important? When you are applying for your first driving license or passport or something, then that's the case when you would use your birth certificate. And if you've already got that in place by the time you start learning to drive or something, then that will save you a lot of hassle of having to get like a passport with the wrong details on and then apply for an update or um, whatever that is involved in that process. But this is mainly for you know, respecting the tra trans people who are of those ages and accepting who they say they are. You know, it's given them these rights that they should really have anyway, but it's also recognizing that they're at the age where they can make this decision uh, themselves. There are trans people, a lot of trans people who don't have supportive family and maybe, you know, they might be living homeless or on their own or away from guardians or it, it, there are a lot of very difficult situations. And I think it just gives them more ability to control their lives and and have access to the rights they need and deserve like to just live a normal life. I mean, what, what you're describing there just sound like sort of very basic rights. And yet there's been some resistance uh, to the reforms. We saw uh, in the debate yesterday that there were protests uh, from the gallery. Um, what do you think the source of this resistance is? Right, yeah. 
it's it's very frustrating because if you listen to like the media sort of mainstream media debate on gender recognition act reform debate um or if you listen to the people protesting it and what they're saying they will be talking about you, you often single sex spaces or healthcare they'll say things like i don't want a man in women's toilets or you know, I'm worried about where people get put in prisons, or I don't think 16-year-olds should be allowed to choose what medical procedures they have. And we can have all of those debates, but that's just not related to the Gender Recognition Act. You know, that's covered by the Equality Act or covered by um, the processes that the NHS has in place, you know, respectively. And the whole of this kind of discussion around the Gender Recognition Act reform, I mean, Often when you hear people talk about it, they'll say, oh, it's very toxic. It's just a comment on it. And it it is. It's horrible. What makes it extra horrible is it's just so disconnected from the reality of the bill. The protests aren't about the bill. They are just about trans people in general. And this bill has kind of become like a proxy war position about whether you support trans rights in general or not. And I think that sort of early in, in the 2010s, around that kind of time, we had this kind of transgender tipping point, which was referred to by sort of some of the media of the first time in sort of the English speaking world uh, in recent history that trans people have been prominent enough that people know what they are. You know, we're first time we're sort of appearing in media and um, on TV shows and all this kind of stuff. And it got to the point where most people kind of knew what a trans person was. And obviously when that happens, you then get the backlash. And the Gender Recognition Act reform was proposed around the time the backlash was starting up, which is around kind of 2016. And so it just then became the convenient thing to like fight against. And that's why I think all of the protests about it are so disconnected from it, because it doesn't really matter what the bill is about. And like we see this in other places. If you look at the USA, for example, whatever law they have kind of going on about trans rights in whichever state or you know district is campaigning for trans rights, that becomes the thing that everyone is talking about. But they all still say all the same talking points. They all still bring up healthcare for children and whether trans women are allowed to use the women's toilets at work and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I do think this is just very disconnected from the actual bill. It's just a wider battle. Yeah, it often comes across as a sort of panic more than anything else. The change in the law, um, if it goes through, which, as I say, it's likely to, is only going to apply to Scotland. And you talked a bit there about changing attitudes. If it does pass, do you think this is a sort of a, a victory for trans people in the UK as a whole? Like, Does it indicate something positive about people's changing attitudes towards trans people? Yeah, I think, um, I guess there's a couple of things here. I mean, if you kind of remove it from the context of what's going on and the wider debate and battle and stuff. It's it's a victory for Scottish trans people in that it, lots of them are now able to get a gender recognition certificate. I mean, so uh, the statistics I've seen or the, the best estimations are that only something like 1% of trans people in the UK have a gender recognition certificate because the process is so invasive and just difficult that most people just haven't applied for one. So that will be a win in that it will win Scottish trans people sort of human rights. But for a wider thing, I think that there is quite a it's a much bigger victory because, like you say, it shows changing attitudes. It's a good signal to trans people that this kind of pushback, this trans panic, the reaction to us being prominent and more socially acceptable isn't going to win and just crush us. And it's it's good to have some kind of sign of like sanity, I guess, that we're not just going to get steamrolled. We've obviously got a much further right government in England and Wales and the UK as a whole, 
than Scotland does. And it can be, you know, especially for younger trans people, this is kind of all they've known. We've had 12 years of the Conservatives. And maybe they'll just think, oh, is this going to be forever? Or trans rights just going to slowly get chipped away until they disappear? Um, so to see people making progress is is moralizing. And it, it's, uh, you know, it's a very positive thing. But I also think for the kind of general campaign for and against trans rights in the UK, this is quite a big point, because like I say, it's like a proxy war. And lots of the arguments being used are saying, oh, well, if we reform the Gender Recognition Act, then, you know, suddenly there'll be men in the women's toilets or something. But the thing is, it will happen, hopefully. And then we'll just look and we'll see none of this kind of fear mongering about it is going to come true. And the reason I feel confident in saying that is that there are tens of countries that have already passed this, some for over a decade. And across the world, in Europe, in South America, many states in the USA, you know, loads of places have this. And Argentina, for example, passed a similar law in uh, 2012. And so that's over a decade now uh, that they've had this law in focus, uh, in like in operation. And none of this sort of fear mongering has happened. And you can see that in the arguments that the anti-trans people are using. If there was evidence from tens of countries, some of these with hundreds of millions of people living them, that this kind of undermined women's rights or gay people's rights or children's rights or, or anyone else, then we would see that. They would be able to say, oh, look, here's the evidence from Brazil. Here's the evidence from, you know, Switzerland. And there just isn't any. So I think that while I can say, look at all these other countries, it's much different when it is at home. And I think that English people and Welsh people and Northern Irish people will be able to look at Scotland and say, oh, well, this is actually part of our country, at least for now. And there was all this big fight around that, and none of the worrying has happened there. None of the fear mongering has come true there. So maybe it's not a big deal. Yeah. See, I'm hoping that it will act as kind of like a, a morale boost for the trans rights movement in the UK, but also as a sign to cis people. Cis is just the word for people who aren't trans. It's kind of a sign to cis people that, hey, look, if you give us rights and you let us just exist, then it's actually not a problem. So. You can go on ignoring us again and it's fine. That was Katie Montgomery talking to us about Scotland's reforms to the Gender Recognition Act. Industrial action and strikes are gripping the country. The reason why is inflation, with workers rejecting pay rises below inflation, which actually leave them poorer. The political ground zero for this is the NHS, with nurses, ambulance workers and support staff all going on strike over the Christmas period. But one response from the government has been to say that workers aren't rejecting a pay offer from them, but from an independent pay review body. Here's Mark Harper, Transport Secretary, a few days ago on Sky News. Since 2010, MP salaries have risen by 28%. You know, and you will accept, that nurses' pay has re reduced in real terms by between 10 and 20%. Is that fair? Well, look, we, we have accepted what the... In, we have an independent pay review body mm -hmm. for people who work in... Well, you ignored the pay review nurses. body when you instituted the and pay freeze. You don't have to do what the pay review and, says. Well, no, but the pay review body's made recommendations mm -hmm. around rises... Which you've ignored actually, in the past. ...which we've accepted in full, which means mm -hmm. the nurse will get a £1,400 pay rise, which is targeted also at the lowest paid, which gives them a larger pay rise mm -hmm. than other people. But you've got to balance that against whether it's widely affordable. The most important thing is that we get inflation under control. That's what's at the root of a lot of these issues. And that's why we've got to balance 
rewarding hardworking public servants, but also not having inflation-busting pay rises is, that is, will embed is, inflation. Is it fair that MPs' wages have risen fast, faster than starting salaries for police, teachers and nurses since the Conservatives well, look, have been in we, power? We don't set MPs' pay, as you That's know. an independent pay body, and they seem to have got you, that wrong. As you know, MPs' pay is set by an independent body. We have nothing to do with setting it at all. You'll remember mm -hmm. that change was made back in 2010. Completely. So MPs have nothing to do with setting their pay. It's an independent body. It's not fair. And they make that the recommendations. Pay body, that independent pay body got it wrong. All I'm gently suggesting is that when it comes to nurses' pay, perhaps they've got this wrong. Well, look, they take evidence for both from the government, but also from the trade unions. They look at recruitment and retention. Mm -hmm. They look at all of those things and they make recommendations that we've accepted them. And I think most people will think that what's been offered is reasonable. It's in line with what people are getting in the private sector. I think most people listening to this will think they've had a reasonable pay offer and I hope they accept it. What a great line. It's not us. It's an independent pay review body. That was what we heard from the Prime Minister, the Health Secretary, and just about every Tory MP doing media rounds this week. Pat Cullen, the General Secretary of the Royal College of Nurses, had this to say in response on BBC Breakfast. What is the point of the independent pay review body? An independent pay review review body set up by government, paid by government, appointed by government, and the parameters of their review set by government. So there's nothing independent about it, and that's why they come up with the 3% that they've come up with. And in fact, if you look back, the, the budget was already set for 3% in the, the trusts like, like I'm standing in front of today. So there's nothing independent about the independent pay review body. It might be accepted by government, it's not accepted by the Royal College of Nursing, and it's certainly not accepted by the 320 20,000 members that voted in this ballot. Cullen has said words to similar effects whenever she's done media rounds, be it on BBC Radio 4 or Question Time. She basically has no confidence in the process we have for pay rises in the public sector. So what's the truth regarding the NHS pay review body? Well, to start, there are nine such bodies in the UK. They cover 2.5 million public sector workers and negotiate £100 billion worth of pay a year. They were created after a series of conflicts between the government and NHS doctors in 1963. But the process gradually extended to cover 45% of all public sector workers, hence why a transport secretary has an opinion on nurses' pay. Now, these independent pay review bodies have traditionally been supported by all sides. They've been seen as genuinely independent. And the best way to ensure that wages for those in the public sector keep pace with the private sector. So Pat Cullen and the RCN's position on this is new. And the fact that nurses want a 19% pay rise while an independent body is offering 4% shows the extent of the problem. Cullen recently told the Financial Times that the RCN had been hoodwinked into lending credence to this process for years, with the government using the pay review body for cover. That is why the RCN, the Royal College of Nurses, is considering whether it will take part in these independent processes in future. But the Royal College of Nurses is far from alone on that. The GMB union, which represents ambulance workers, has said it is withdrawing from the process next year. Unite the Union told the Financial Times existing pay bodies are, quote, not fit for purpose. While Kevin Courtney, the Joint General Secretary of the National Education Union, the NEU, has said education unions are considering a boycott of the process next year. Now, here's a graph courtesy of the Financial Times. It shows proposed pay rises for nurses and headline inflation since 1984. Now, what is understandable and undeniable, from my point of view, I think it is, it's pretty, you know, 
indisputable, you really can't go against this, is that since 2010, nurses have had a very poor deal. You can see there, just after 2010, several years of pay freezes. And I think for seven of the last 10 years, inflation, the headline rate of inflation, has been above the recommended headline pay rise. And it's particularly bad this year. You can see it's massively outstripped by inflation. And that's a change with before and explains why the Royal College of Nurses has had enough. For a growing army of skeptics, the independence of those who sit on paid bodies is compromised. That's because their remit is set by the government, and they themselves are chosen by the government. The chair of each committee, and there are nine altogether, as I've just said, is appointed by, guess who, the Prime Minister, while the other members are appointed by the Prime Minister or the relevant Secretary of State. What's more, the process requires them to include affordability constraints, departmental spending plans, and the government's 2% inflation target. So it's easy to see how a government which favors austerity can build in low pay for public sector workers. Seems like it's rigged. Nihal, what's your view? Are in and pay review bodies committed to semi-permanent austerity with professions like nursing? It's really evident here there's just a way in which the government can reject its responsibility and delay taking key decisions. It's just more mental gymnastics to undermine workers' demands. The government first tried using the 19% request to you know, make it seem as if it's an outrageous demand, but they don't even want to give a counter offer. And it also doesn't make sense to keep saying it's a pay rise when it's just the staff trying to avoid a real terms pay cut and loss in compensation. And like you said, Aaron, the review board is constrained in its remit by the Tory government, handpicked by the Tory government, and given pay parameters by the Tory government. It's the oldest trick in the book under neoliberalism to contract your dirty work out so that you technically don't have to be culpable for anything. And the second point is, if they were truly independent, then recommending anything other than a real terms pay rise must be a given, surely. It is failing in its mandate to do so, then, if it's an independent body, if NHS staff are skipping meals and relying on food banks. That's not a conspiracy theory or said lightly. I think there's six NHS trusts which pre presently have food banks or voucher systems for staff. And as that graph showed from the FT earlier on, I think you've got seven of 10 years falling real wages. We know that nurses have seen their pay fall in real terms by 10 to 20%. There's, there's clearly something wrong with the process. I think it's very hard to say it's, it's functioning. Do you think that the, the criticism of the independent pay review body, do you think that feeds through to a broader discontent with politics generally now? Because this is one of those instances where it just seems so rigged, so corrupt, where you have a prime minister saying this is independent, when they themselves determine who chairs the quote-unquote independent review body. Do, do you think that, again, is something which could be favourable political terrain? Or again, because the Labour leadership, Keir Starmer, because they're not really saying anything, because they're equally missing an action, we're missing a chance here to politicise something which actually is really screwed up. The nurses are gaining a lot of public sympathy, and it should, even back in the 80s, Thatcher introduced 25% across the board for all public service workers. Um, they don't want to give a counter offer. There's been an NHS staff shortfall of like 20% over the last 12 years. If anyone, if the government wants any ongoing longevity of the NHS, then you pay them that money. It's easy. Unless you actually don't want that, which we know the government doesn't want to because, 
you know, as the 2019 election has shown, like they want to privatize the NHS. So maybe that's what's happening. He's loudmouth, gratuitously offensive, and has often been accused of misogyny. But enough about Piers Morgan. Because this week he played the role of mini-me to Andrew Tate's Dr. Evil. Now, if you don't know who Andrew Tate is, he rose to fame early this year after being booted off of Instagram and Facebook. He had 4.7 million followers on the former. In August, he was the most searched person on Google, higher than Donald Trump, Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, or Kim Kardashian. On TikTok, videos featuring his name as a hashtag have been viewed 13 billion times. That's right, 13 billion. That led him to tweet this earlier this month. Genghis Khan had endless women and 200 children as reward for conquest. I am the most searched man on the planet. I have conquered Earth. I'm the highest status male on the planet. Females do not expect loyalty from me. They only expect that of lesser men. Tate spoke to Morgan last night where he gave his views on contemporary Britain. When I was in Qatar, A, I thought the World Cup was fantastically well run, incredibly good experience. But a lot of Qataris were saying to me, you know, there's this weird quaint feeling back in your country that we all want to aspire to behave like that, that we all want to live in a country with massive drug problems, with massive knife crime issues, with scenes like the European Championships final where it's complete lawlessness going on, um, where stuff like the NHS, the system of healthcare, is basically collapsing, where the education system is dropping behind, so on and so on and so on. It's a really interesting perspective. They were like... I know you all think that we want to have your form of democracy and your form of life, but actually we're fine, thanks. Absolutely, because it's a failed society and it's godless. I think it's disgusting. We leave our old people to rot in old people's homes and then we sit there and say we don't have enough money for nurses. I understand this nurse strike very well and how frustrating it can be if you walk into a hospital and the nurse is not prepared to work. But the nurses would be prepared to work at the current wage if they believed this country was spending its money prudently. When you see this country spending its money and just absolutely wasting it, pulling out of thin air to fund proxy wars, God knows where that has nothing to do with them. Of course, as a nurse, you're going to stand up and say, well, can't I get a pay rise? This country has failed on every metric. And especially our major cities. I've just come to London now. I made it very clear to my private jet pilot. I said, fuel the jet and leave it running. Because the second I'm finished talking to peers, I'm leaving this cesspit. It's disgusting. This country and London as a whole 10 years ago was one of the most hospitable cities on earth. Now you cannot walk around safely with a watch on. And you're a full-grown man. You're a full-grown adult. When's the last time there's been a serious problem in your life that you completely ignored and it fixed itself? Never, ever. What are any of our politicians doing to fix any of the problems we're dealing with? Now, I found this such a curious clip, Nihal. I'll tell you why. Because Andrew Tate, perhaps for reasons we'll get into, is a, is a bit of a ridiculous character, and he's wrong about a great many things, as is Piers Morgan. And yet they were talking about a situation which I think is a disintegration of public services, stagnation of living standards and whatnot, and feeding into a conversation about broader national decline, which actually a lot of legacy media doesn't want to talk about, a lot of politicians don't want to acknowledge, but I think is where the country is at. And my concern is you have figures like Andrew Tate making sense, whereas a lot of the legacy media does not. I want to hear your thoughts on that, Nihal. Maybe I'm alone in overestimating this man. So basically, I think like my opinion on Andrew Tate is that he should be deplatformed. No free speech for people like this. But what you said is right, actually. Um, people like Andrew Tate get the followings that they do. Um, you know, also goes for people like you know, at the very 
uh, high end of this is Trump is because they actually acknowledge that there's the problem in society, whereas, you know, legacy media, like you said, or other more establishment figures don't. So when he says, oh, there is a problem, and then he diagnoses it correctly, but then offers prescriptions that are so <laughs> horrible, people trust his prescriptions because his diagnosis is correct, you know? The same goes for Trump, the same goes for, you know, anyone else of these, like, outlandish figures who, um, uh, you know, are, are, um, rely on populism. You said he shouldn't be platformed. I mean, that's what happened. He, the reason why he trended on Google was because, of course, he lost his um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. He's back on Twitter, I should say, platforms. I suppose in his advantage, he had this kind of mini-me brother called Tristan who could just sort of fill, fill the gaps. But I suppose what's, what's quite important here is he lost the platform and in, and in some ways he became more relevant than ever. And, and that's a whole separate conversation about how do you deal with that sort of stuff. But do you think that by denying people like him a platform, does that make a certain subsection of the population go, well, he must have something relevant to say? I mean, in the very beginning, yes, like as soon as it happens, but then he becomes irrelevant very quickly. Um, remember that, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Milo Yiannopoulos, do you, do you know how to pronounce his last name? Milo Yiannopoulos, yeah, very similar characters, really good yeah. point, actually. yeah. Do you even know who he is right now? Do you remember him at all? Like well, he, he's selling, he's that, selling like that Kanye stuff that Kanye wheeled him out of you know irrelevance last yeah. two weeks ago. But no one remembers who he is. Everyone was talking about him all the time, but no one remembers him. Richard Spencer or whatever. People will forget about these characters. Like it will be in the beginning, in the two months after their deplatform then people will be like oh they have something to say but then as we all know like media cycles are very short and people don't have a big memory and like i'd rather people like this be deplatformed. but i suppose as well going back to this for somebody like piers morgan who's trying to build a show on talk tv there are massive incentives therefore to invite somebody like andrew tate on because Nobody else is going to give the guy a platform. You know, that interview, which is up on that YouTube channel, that's got a, a million views in a very short period of time. So unless it's coordinated across all of the media, it's, a, it's an interesting question. How would you do that? So for instance, when it was Milo Yiannopoulos, British media was BBC, Sky, ITV, Channel 4. Now you have Talk TV, you have GB News. It seems to me there's a kind of fragmentation going on. We're actually saying that the deplatform thing, it was a really effective strategy regarding Milo. I, and I don't, I don't think it was the I don't think it was the wrong thing to do. I think it was the right thing to do. But I wonder, as the media landscape evolves, as you get these new channels, often very right-wing, often very populist, maybe that's just gonna be less effective. What do you think? I'm not sure about this actually, but because Piers Morgan does what Piers Morgan does best, right? Is like being contrarian for views and to stay relevant and to garner public outrage and that's how he how he is Piers Morgan and there's a really big problem with English media that we all know like quite frankly like nasty and maybe that's the larger issue we should talk about is why this keeps happening in English media specifically it's a good point something we'll discuss I'm sure more on Tiski Sour in 2023 Nihal thanks so much for joining us tonight you've been fantastic and I hope you have a Merry Christmas thanks for having me our pleasure.
We will be back on Friday at 7 p.m. with Michael back in his customary seat. I will not be with him, but I'm sure the co-host will be even better. So make sure to hit subscribe and join us then. I'm Aaron Bastani, and you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.